Good morning. Today's scripture, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of inequity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father. And with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. For the same mouth, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring Pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Amen. The word of God. Friends and family, this is a terrifying passage for me. Did you hear the first part that Barbara read for us? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Um, Sort of makes me want to just say pass (laughs) to this experience we're about to go through together. Uh, But no, we're going to preach together. So this is the cover for our bulletin, and the face should look somewhat familiar to you. Uh, because it's a drawing of me. Uh, I'm caught up just as much in this text as I'm sure that you are, this language of how we use our speech. And now I'm going to venture to speak uh, to, with, and for us for like, you know, 30 plus minutes. So I'm going to take some deep breaths to get started. The verse right after what we read today is verse 13 in chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? I'm not sure all the times if that's me. The other thing I was just thinking as I was standing over there hearing the scripture read, is if there's someone else who feels more qualified to preach this sermon, uh, you're welcome. At any point, there is a microphone right here, and you may come up and speak. Uh, I say that sort of in jest, but let me say, um, there's something about preaching in this community of friends and family that feels, uh, well, it, it is often a blessing for me as the preacher and the pastor, And this kind of text on how we use our speech to either lift one another up or to tear each other apart, I feel some level of confidence to be able to set this in our midst 
and know that we can pick it up with some amount of responsibility and understanding. Uh, Partly because it's of what I've received in this space of speech that has built me up or there's been a blessing or that my family has received, but also hearing the way that you speak to one another. Uh, I do want to say a few things this morning, though, about the kind of speech we live within all of the time, which is going to force us to reckon with culture and the ways that we speak to each other out in public. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how Jesus teaches us to speak. Uh, so are you ready? Let's jump in. I may have mentioned this before to you, but I want to bring up again for your consideration. There is a, uh, a comedy special known as Nanette. And this is not Nanette to the right. This is a drawing of Hannah Gadsby, who is the uh, creator and the, the comic who came up with this set. It won a bunch of awards uh, for this kind of groundbreaking comedy special. And who in here has seen Nanette? Okay. Uh, so Nan- Hannah, let me just give you a little background on her, and then I want to read you a couple of quotes. Uh, Hannah is a comedian who, she's from Australia, she's from Tasmania in Australia, and a lot of her comedy for most of her career is focused on what she would call like self-deprecating humor about who she is. Uh, Hannah is a, a gay woman who had grown up and lived most all of her life in a very, very conservative, really, I think, hostile land in this place called Tasmania. I, I didn't know a lot about Tasmania at the time. It sounds a little bit like Mississippi, uh, which is where I'm from. And you you laugh a little bit because you know what it means to say something is like Mississippi if you're not from Mississippi. But it was a difficult place for her to grow up. It's a difficult place for her to learn who she was. And her comedy took on sort of what she would say is like her own form of self-hatred turned inside out and then handed back to the world as as jokes. Uh, So she has this special called Nanette where she is, if you care about like the form of of stand-up comedy just as like an art form. It's a really special experience to get to listen to this because she's deconstructing and then reconstructing comedy while she's telling a really true story about her own life. Uh, But she was a guide for me. I think I heard this like a year ago or so. She was a guide for me about what speech can do, how it can harm, and what might be able to be reclaimed in true speech. Okay? So there are guides all over the place. Let me read you just a couple of lines from the special. She's talking about how she feels like she has to quit comedy. She says this is a very strange thing to say in the middle of a Netflix comedy special, that this is the venue she would choose to quit comedy in the middle of a comedy show. She goes, but I've been questioning this whole comedy thing. I don't feel very comfortable in it anymore. You know, over the past year, questioning and reassessing, I built a career out of self-deprecating humor. That's what I built my career on, and I don't want to do that anymore. Because do you understand? Do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists at the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply won't do that anymore, not to myself or to anybody who identifies with me. And if that means my comedy career is over, then so be it. Then she tells this story about what it was to talk to her own grandmother about who she was at her deepest levels in her heart. She says, I came out to my grandmother last year because I'm still ashamed of who I am. She's 40 at the time, so 39 years of her grandmother not knowing the fullness of who she is. I'm ashamed of who I am, not intellectually, she says, but right here, I still have shame. You learn from the part of the story you focus on. And hold that line. You learn from the part of the story you focus on. I need to tell my story properly. 
Because the closet for me was no easy thing to come out of. From the years 1989 to 1997, right, that's 10 years, effectively my adolescence, Tasmania was the center of very toxic national debate about what it meant to be homosexual and whether or not it should be legalized. From, I'm from the northwest coast, she says, of Tasmania, which is known as the Bible Belt in that region. 70% of the people I lived among believed that who I was should be a criminal act. 75, 70% of the people who raised me, who loved me, who trusted me, and I trusted, believed that I was heinous or subhuman. 70%. By the time I identified as being gay, it was too late. I was already homophobic, she says. And you don't just flick a switch on that. No, what you do is you internalize it and you learn to hate yourself. Hate yourself at your core. So she sat soaking in shame, she says, in the closet for 10 years. Because the closet can only stop you from being seen, but it's not shame-proof. When you soak a child in shame, they cannot develop the neurological pathways that carry thought, especially carry thoughts of self-worth. They can't do that. Self-hatred is only ever a seed that is planted from the outside in. But when you do that to a child, it becomes a weed so thick and it grows so fast, the child doesn't know any different. It becomes like natural as gravity. When I came out of the closet, I didn't have any jokes. The only thing I knew to do was to be invisible and hate myself. It took 10 years to understand I was allowed to take up space in the world. But by then, I'd sealed it off into jokes like it was no big deal. I need to tell my story properly because they paid dearly for a lesson that nobody seems to have wanted to learn. And this is bigger than simply sexuality, she says. And this is what I want you all to hear. This is bigger than any one kind of conversation that splits us and atomizes us and causes us to speak words of destruction to one another. This is about how we conduct debate in public about sensitive things. It's toxic, it's juvenile, and it's destructive. We think it's more important to be right than it is to appeal to the humanity of people we disagree with. Ignorance will always walk amongst us because we will never know all the things, she says. I do not claim to know all the things. I'm simply trying to speak with Jesus. To sound more and more like Christ. I think that's what we're all after while we're here. Hannah is a good guide in this as she has learned how to speak a language of of love and self-care in a world that was unable to affirm who she was. But that language that we live in a place where we always have to be right, we always have to win an argument, uh, that feels true. That feels really true. And this came out in 2018 when speech, it's really like cliche at this point to say this is the worst time it's ever been for the way that we speak to one another. Because I went back and read some like political tracts from the 17 and 1800s. Turns out we've always been speaking to each other in these kinds of, they were mean back then. Uh, and you can keep going back and finding the same sort of things. This is what we are doing in church, is we are learning to speak Christian. And it is clear to me that there are distinct speech patterns that we will develop in this space together. If we are attending to this text together. Some of those words are words that the culture has picked up and tried to make true in its best sense. Words like, I'm sorry. Or words like, I forgive you. Speaking love in its deepest forms, that's part of what it means to speak Christian. 
But we are speaking Christian in a world that has all kinds of other ways of using language. And what I have noticed, has anyone noticed that the only way you are allowed to talk anymore is in the language of politics? Raise your hand if that feels true. Like everything I hear and see feels like you were only allowed to speak in political terms. The other way that we're supposed to speak is like the market. Everything is tabulated. Everything has a cost associated with it. Think about how we speak about time. You save time. You spend time. You don't have enough time. That's the language of the market. The other speech pattern that feels pervasive is the language of war or of violence. This, if you enter into just sort of the world at large, this feels like the set of words we are allowed to say to one another. And the speech that we can imagine either constrains our imagination or it opens it up. And so part of learning to speak Christian is to learn an expansive vocabulary for the things God cares about. The world will give us plenty of words to hate one another or to hate ourselves. The church is the place where we learn to speak words that put us back together. And that's what James is getting at in this section from our reading today. One author talks about our culture, especially the culture in America, uh, as an argument culture. Oh, that feels real true. And I love to argue. Does anyone else love to argue? I just love it because I love to win. Do you love to? I love to win. Win, right? And... (laughs) Corey will tell me all the time, like, I don't want to fight. And I'm thinking, I don't want to fight. I just want to win something. (laughs) And if anyone spends any length of time with me, you know this is true. Uh, Partly because I love ideas, but also because this is true of me too. I, I stand fully inside of this dangerous critique that James is giving about the power of speech, which is why I'm so scared to keep talking right now as a teacher, uh, to live inside of a zero-sum world where there are always winners and losers. That's an argument culture. You know where I see this a lot? is the same place you see this, which is online. Does anyone like to talk to each other online? It's the worst. It's the worst. And so because I feel obligated each week to tell you to spend less time online, I'm going to say it right now, you should spend less time online. And I have this on like tons of research and good authority. If you want to debate with me after church, I'm happy to win that debate with you. I'm losing it to everyone, everyone. I was at a, a pastor's conference and uh, if any of these pastor friends listen to the podcast, they'll, they'll know the story. I was at a conference with like 30 friends a couple weeks ago and we were talking about uh, how to start well in a church and, and what are some good things to do or not do as you're beginning a life of a pastorate in a local community. And so I like tentatively raised my hand and I said, just, I think the best thing you could do is if you got off your social media, um, for two reasons. One, you're a bigger jerk there. And two, everyone else, you know, looks like a bigger jerk there. And those two things self-reinforce. I said, just get off. And wouldn't you know that a couple days later, one of my friends wrote an article against what I had said (laughs) and it got published. (laughs) So, yes, I'm definitely losing this, Ted. Um, The other place that all of our speech starts to mimic is the speech of online. Uh, We spend so much more of our time speaking in those spaces that we start to reflect that in our real world. Um, There are all kinds of examples of this. Like, there are people now requesting, I've told you this, plastic surgery so they look more like the filters on their phone. What happens in our digital world is making the real world look more like 
the digital world. And if anything, we do not want our speech to look like a comments thread on an article, right? If you go to the comments thread on an article, your soul will die and you will call me and say, will you please come cleanse my home? So comment threads, they were supposed, do you know what a comment thread is? A comment thread is like if there's an article online, at the end of that article, there is a space for us to react to the article. And this seemed like a good idea because what it was supposed to do was it was supposed to democratize our own speech with one another. And so I would write an article and then you would come in, Ted, and you would be like, I totally agree with John Jay, 100%, because that's normally what you say when we speak, right? And then Corey would come along and be like, absolutely not. Except that's not how the comment threads work. People are way grosser in those spaces. The language of trolling comes from comment threads. Uh, It's kind of like letter to the editors on steroids and speed at the same time, which is a bad cocktail for generative conversations. But all of these like news organizations thought in the advent of online publishing that comment threads would invite a larger conversation. And in that larger conversation, the best things would bubble to the surface. That's not true at all. So let me read for you what NPR said in 2008 about their comment threads that they were so excited they were going to launch. We're providing a forum for infinite conversations on NPR.org. Our hopes are high. Can you imagine hopes being high at this point? We hope the conversations will be smart and generous of spirit. We hope the adventure is exciting, fun, helpful, and informative. Um, 2016, they turned off all of their comment threads. (laughs) Turned them all off. There's a bunch of organizations that just shut it down. And here's what they said in the most gobbledygook kind of speech ever. Uh, from an organization. After much experimentation and discussion, we've concluded that the comment sections and NPR.org stories are not providing a useful experience for the vast majority of our users. End of sentence. I mean, it's like a really, really uh, HR way of saying people were being jerks to one another over and over again. Uh, side note, I went online to watch uh, a video of some folks talking about Hannah Gatsby's Nanette and, it, and then I, I went down to the comment section on YouTube. It was awful. They were so mean. It was, it was exactly what our comedy special was about. Uh, second side note, we turned off all of our social media at the church about six months ago. As I've been doing a lot of research and, and reading and praying about where do we speak the kindest to one another. One person who works in, in the tech industry says about the way our speech is, is perverted or inverted online and goes, go where you're the kindest. And I noticed like these are not spaces where I was finding kindness. And so I keep trying to redirect us to face to face, to this space together. There's something that happens here that even like when we text, we can say things we don't mean to say, but when we are in person, we have to accept the consequences of our speech. Uh, so the more that I want to talk to you about God, and I want to talk to you about God all the time, uh, I'd rather just do it here face to face, and I know that you would too. Um, so that's what we do together, and we just don't have a big online presence outside of our website. Um, one more story. Do, do you all remember, I'm, I've talked about this before, but I just feel like I need to tell you one more time about Tay. Tay is the Microsoft bot that got released a few years ago into the world. I and mean, now I feel like I need to explain what a bot is. <laughs> We've now talked about comment threads. 
Now we're going to talk about bots. They're just programs that are written to learn things and then to do things automatically. And so they, Microsoft sent this bot into Twitter. By sent, I mean like pressed enter, right? And, and this, this kind of algorithm goes and learns from all of the people who are on Twitter. And it's supposed to develop and grow up like an adolescent. Uh, it took less than 24 hours for Tay to become a racist, homophobic, really, really bad person. They had to shut down this account in 24 hours because it learned so fast from our speech patterns online how to hate one another. The other thing about our online spaces is it amplifies what is most viral. And what is most viral is what is most vile. What is most negative? If you want to go to where you were the kindest, it's probably not online. It's probably face-to-face. This is her first, her, (laughs) this is the bot's first text. Hello, world. And then by the end, the bot was praising Hitler. Like, that's how quick it happened in 24 hours. Learning to speak Christian means to practice our speech patterns among those who are speaking with God. And in a world where people are using all kinds of other speech patterns for all kinds of other ends, it's going to take some practice. But we have to know a bit of what we're up against here. If I say anything today, I want you to hear this, that words create worlds. We often think that words are descriptive. This sheet is green and yellow. Right? That's a reality that I'm just describing to you. But language is also performative. It also does something in the world. We know this primarily because of the way the Bible talks about creation, that God creates with speech, that can conjure up a new reality with a set of words, with language. We also know that the expansiveness of our language corresponds to how much we understand about a thing. If you are bad at love, you are going to have a very small set of words to affirm one another. And to grow that language is to grow that capacity for love and affection. But the way that we talk about things or about people or about God changes the way that we experience the world. And then we will start to create the world to match the language that we are speaking. Let me give you an example. The language of migrants is like pretty hot and heavy these days. If you turn on the news in any part of the world, you're going to hear the language about mass migrations of people. And there's this debate going on all the time about what kind of language we ascribe to this group of people who are moving from one place to the other for all kinds of reasons. And that would take us down a whole nother uh, rabbit trail to go through all of those reasons. But there is a crisis right now happening all over the world around migration patterns and people who are having to flee, who cannot find safe passage. Uh, This could be at our southern border. It could be all across uh, the European Union. I mean, it's everywhere. And so the language of migrant is one of the words that folks have landed on. Uh, You can feel this debate in our own country right now as we wrestle over terms. The other word you'll hear often is refugee. And what does it mean to see someone and name them as refugee? To say that the place where they are from and where they are leaving is so hostile that they have to flee to some place that might welcome them in safely. This is also a legal term. Asylum seekers is one of the words that have shown up in our own uh, speech patterns and our own news sources these days. There are other ways to, to speak about folks, though. 
undocumented, which says what these people are not. Illegals is another word you'll hear a lot. Naming someone based on the thing that they have done out of line with your common set of convictions. Human would be another word you could use for these folks. You've heard in other places the language of animal used for folks crossing borders. These words, they constrain our imagination or they open it up. And they are not neutral. We know that language precedes destruction. Genocides often start with someone in power harnessing a certain set of words to direct at people, to rename them, to create a new world around them. We actually have another word for humans. It's the language of belonging. That you are a child of God. And that the see one another in that primal first identity. And to hold that in front of us all of the time. Can you feel the difference between all of that language and what it opens up for us? And like set aside for a second all of the debate around politics, the debate about economics, but simply what does it mean to be part of this human family? And how does God see us? I actually am not sure if God knows where our borders are. I don't think God cares. And it's okay that we care for certain things like order and distribution of resources. Like, I mean, it is okay to think about these things. But primary language, what is that? What does it mean to speak Christian first? There's a vast difference between these two terms. The language of cockroach is what was the language spoken in Rwanda during the genocide, right? makes it a lot easier to kill somebody whenever you think of them as an insect. The language of swarming and infestation, that is language weaponized. James uses the language, Jesus uses the language, all through the New Testament of beloved. Even when saying a hard thing, even when giving a bit of a reprimand or criticism, there's this language of beloved. And each of these speaks to a different reality. Somebody this week in in our Bible study was talking about the words that they use for their own children and how saying to them, beloved, and speaking to them of deep worth and of value and of possibility opens up for that person those things. And if you've been spoken to in a way, especially by someone you love and trust like a parent, that your worth is less or contingent on your behavior or lacking because of your behavior, you will start to believe that. And just like Hannah, you will begin to hate yourself. Words create reality. Don't just describe reality. So what does James tell us to do? If you have a Bible, you could open to it. First thing, we don't know what to say, is to just slow down. To slow down the reactivity. How many times have we said a thing and wish that we could just, oh, if we would have just paused and taken a breath. How many letters have you typed out and not hit send and come back to you the next day and thought, oh, thank goodness I didn't send that letter. Right? Slow down. And again, the world that we are continuing to create is faster and faster and faster. Getting ideas out there as fast as we can. 
making sure our opinions are heard because the loudest and the fastest usually wins the argument. And what do we want to do? We want to win. We want to win. James says, you must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Your anger does not produce God's righteousness. So maybe that's a good place for us to start. Because we are going to find ourselves caught up in the speech patterns of the world, where anger is looking for language to weaponize and to send out into the world as violence. It's normal, even if it's not redeemed. So James, always offering practical wisdom, just slow down. Say less. Take a minute. Bill, can I pick on you for a second? Bill and I get uh, lunch once a month or so, and I, I am constantly impressed with, because you've been in leadership for a while, you often stand in between uh, folks in very difficult situations and make yourself available to them that way. And I feel like you model very well what it means to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Uh, I've experienced that in multiple conversations, and I know that that is not accidental, but is a practice. Would you, would you agree with that? I'm trying to describe what I've just felt come off of you. And I've been in conversations that are exactly opposite of, of Bill. Uh, not a lot here though. I'll be honest. Not a lot here. There have been other congregations where I've served or I've worked where I've had to say to the staff, um, please don't turn in comment cards to the staff for the next month. Like we just don't need to see them right now. Uh, side note, if you turn in a comment card to us, we would love to see it. If it's anonymous, we're not going to read it. Because we want to know who you are, and it's very hard to understand you if you're not you. So, if you have something heavy to say to us, and that's okay, it's okay to speak heavy words to one another, we just want to know who you are, and we'll do the same back to you. Um, but Bill is modeled for me slow speech. And it has, in times, because we've been through stuff, even in the two years we've been together, I think preserved our friendship and, and allowed it to blossom. Um, you probably have someone in your life who's modeled slow speech. Uh, and if that's not you, it's an easy practice. Just, just don't. That's it. Just don't for a little bit. And then maybe after you've not done it for a little bit, then you can. Just don't. Uh, the other question we have to ask when we're trying to learn how to speak Christian is what does Jesus sound like? Jesus is what God looks like. That's how we understand Jesus the Christ. God made flesh. And the way that Jesus speaks in the world is the way we are called to speak in the world. If you remember back when we were preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, we uh, went through the whole thing. But what is the first thing that Jesus says in the sermon? Does anybody remember? Yeah, it's the language of blessing. Jesus is about to give them back the law read through his own person. Standing up like the prophet Moses on a mountain and sharing with them the word from God. But before the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, Jesus tells them who they are. Names for them the reality, the big reality. And says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes. And then in verse 11 shifts and said, Blessed are you. Speaking to a people who are craving, because all of us are craving that word from God, that language of blessing and of belonging. Blessed are you, Jesus says. When people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Jesus knows what this feels like. When the rest of the speech patterns of the world are crushing you, the word from God is, blessed are you, even then. And then continues to name them. You are. You are the salt of the earth. And then you are the light of the world. Now I can say on good evidence and with some research to back it up that this is not just for those folks who heard it, but also for us. And so can say with full confidence that blessed are you and that you are the salt of the earth and that you are the light of the world. That is our calling and that is the larger reality, the words spoken over you that you grow into. This is what Jesus sounds like. At the worst, at the end, when Jesus is dying... And in those situations, like, you really find out who somebody is. Uh, I've sat beside a lot of folks who were dying, and they either glow and illuminate from a life well lived, or it just turns really upside down and inside out. Um, at the end, Jesus uses the language of forgiveness. Forgive them, for they don't know what's going on. This is what Jesus sounds like. This is what I want to sound like. Being in this space together. Quieting yourself enough to listen. I mean, kind of to me, but really, please don't make it for me. What you're actually listening for is God's voice when you come into this space. When you sing, when we pray, when we read scripture, we're listening for God's speech. And in listening for God's speech, we're hoping that we would learn a new way to speak into the world. Because what we hope is that we can participate in God's work in the world. That we can be like God calls us to be. So church, following Jesus, submitting to one another, is learning a new language in this life. A language that you're probably not going to learn elsewhere. And if, if you are, at least you are learning it here. One of the biggest tragedies is the way that church sometimes becomes the locus for people's new language of hate. That's like, it's so painful. And so many people I meet say that their wounds are actually from the way the church taught them to speak and taught other people to speak about them. But we want to sound like Jesus. Last week we had a class called Basics. Our Basics class is our um, kind of like deep dive into who we are as a church. And if you're interested in becoming a member of our congregation, what you're actually signing up for. And we have these about once every four to eight weeks. Uh, and the question always arises, what do we have to do to be a member of this congregation? And uh, we talk about baptism. We talk about uh, a life of faith that you have walked into freely. But the language that accompanies baptism is what we come back to over and over again. 
that if this statement is true in your life and you are trying to make it intelligible to your life, uh, then we are walking in the same direction. And, and what is the language we say in baptism? What is the one bit of liturgy we ask that the person who's being baptized says and that we as the congregation receive? It's that Jesus is Lord. That is the thesis sentence for faith. There are a lot of other things that we can disagree on and we can fight about and we can try to win. But that phrase, to make that intelligible to your life and more and more true each day, that is what we are all about here. There are a lot of other things that will try to claim lordship, try to claim supremacy, the ultimate reality, but we are trying to make it true that Jesus is in charge here. And that the way of Jesus is the way that we are walking. That is our thesis sentence as a church. If that sounds foreign to you, then we should talk. Because I would love to have a conversation with you. And if that sounds like enough for you, then this is your family. And we can talk about anything else we need to speak about. If Jesus is Lord. Are we on the same page? Are we okay? Okay. I, uh, I want to say, want to say one more thing. And then I want to let scripture speak. Words have an end, have a purpose, have a directional pitch to them. And when these words are Christian speech, when they are God's words joining with our own words, then they are moving in a certain direction. I was reading a book by one of my preaching professors. The book's title is The End of Words. And he says in there, that the end of all speech is reconciliation. The end of all speech is putting things back together. Over and over again, we talk about that, that sin, the thing that keeps messing things up, the crack that runs through the center of everything, is that which divorces us and alienates us from one another and from God, and from this creation, and even from ourselves. That is sin's effect on us, shattering in all meaningful dimensions. And so the language that God has given us is the language of putting these things back together. In Judaism, they call it gathering the light. Here is how one writer in the New Testament talks about it. And here's how I want to end today. With just a practice of listening. Uh, I've said a lot, and God help me, I've said a lot, right, as a teacher. Um, I really appreciate prayer all the time for the unique role that I have and other pastors on staff have to speak. And it's an honor, but it's also a danger. Um, so I really don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> I just want to read scripture with you. Uh, and we're going to read it several times. This is a process called Lectia Divina. And you might be familiar with it. It's a reflective, contemplative kind of listening together. So I'm going to read this passage four times. Uh, I'm going to read it slowly. And we're going to practice quickness of listening and slowness of our own speech. But this is the language of reconciliation. This is the end of words. And this is what is given to us to speak. And if you're not sure what to say in the world, because we're not always sure what to say in the world, if it is the language of putting things back together, then we might be on the right path. So, if you, um, if, 
if you have a Bible and you want to read along, you can. But I actually recommend that you just listen. Uh, just listen and let these words uh, fall on you. See where they land. Don't try to understand and like untie them to solve them like a math equation. But just to receive them like a gift, it would be a good practice for us today. Let me read for you. After each reading, there'll be a pause of just a little bit of silence, and then I'll read again. And at the end, I'm going to say amen, and then we're going to sing again together. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ, Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here again, these words of scripture. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled, to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These words are for you, spoken in the midst of this assembly. From now on, therefore, we no longer regard anyone from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And all of this is from God, 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One last time, and then we will join our amen to the reading of Scripture. From now on, therefore, we no longer regard one another from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new, and all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all God's people said, amen.